I have an incurable blood cancer called multiple myeloma. It's incurable, but it's treatable with very expensive drugs. For example, the drug I'm on right now, the combination of drugs I'm receiving, retail price is about $10,000 every time I get treatment. And I expect to have treatment about 22 times in the coming year. That's the voice of David Mitchell. He's a cancer patient living in the US and the founder of the charity Patients for Affordable Health. Many people like David argue that prescription drugs are far too expensive and that pharma and healthcare companies have a monopoly on pricing which allows them to charge what they want for their drugs. Each year, Americans spend on average of $1,000 per person on prescription drugs and healthcare accounts for 18% of GDP. Many also argue that the structure of the US healthcare system intensifies the burden on patients. Revlimid, the drug which David needs for his myeloma, costs the NHS around a third the price it does for patients in the US. Drugs pricing is a hugely emotive topic, and unsurprisingly, it came to the fore over the last 12 months amid the US election season. There are, of course, many reasons to explore the social and human impacts of the healthcare industry, but we're here to talk about investing. I'm Megan Boxall. And I'm Alex Newman, and in this podcast, we're going to cut through the political noise surrounding the industry and try to understand how the continual debate over drug pricing will impact UK pharma and biotech. We'll also be hearing from a number of industry insiders for their take on the opportunities in the sector and why there are still good reasons to look at pharma and biotech companies as worthwhile investments. So Megan, given that we're a UK-based publication, why are we talking about the US healthcare market? Why does it matter to us? So the US is far and away the biggest market for drug sales. For all the big pharma companies globally, which includes the UK's giants such as uh, GSK, AstraZeneca and Shire, the US is the largest contributor to their revenue. And the small cap players, getting a drug approval in the US market is a really big deal due to the prices that new drugs can demand. Why are drug prices so high in the US? So... Simply, the reason is that in the US, drugs makers have the ability to set their own prices, which isn't something that happens anywhere else in the world. For example, in the UK, the government body NICE is the sole regulator in charge of deciding which drugs are available for doctors to prescribe to patients. And as the sole regulator, it's in a strong position to negotiate with the drugs companies and drive down the price. So naturally, this is um, this made for a very politically charged arena, particularly in the last year, as we've talked about. It started off with Hillary Clinton tweeting and issuing notes uh, on price gouging and about how she's going to change the healthcare landscape in the US. But Hillary, as we all know, didn't win the election. So what has been the driving uh, event since Donald Trump took office, Megan? Um, so, yeah, like you say, um, it was a Democrat issue before before the election, um, during the election. And then when Trump was actually elected, the pharma companies thought, great, he isn't on the same wavelength as Hillary Clinton. But then all of a sudden he was supportive of drugs price decreases um, and that has brought some sort of volatility to share prices from people trading on sentiment. And as we'll hear in the following clip, his opinions are both combative and in some instances could be supportive. US drug companies have produced extraordinary results for our country, but the pricing has been astronomical. For our country, better do better. New drugs have led to longer, healthier lives. We all know that. But we have to do better. Accelerating cures. We're forced and focused on accelerating FDA approvals. We're going to get the approval process much faster. We have to lower the drug prices. The competition, the key to lower drug prices. We have competition, but a lot of times the competition dissipates. I'll oppose anything that makes it harder. 
for smaller, younger companies to take the risk of bringing a product to a vibrantly competitive market. So it sounds like drug pricing is definitely one of the many things in Mr. Trump's crosshairs. It is. It even preceded Trump taking office as the Department of Justice was already looking at this area, which has understandably got some people spooked. Um, On the subject of market nerves, I spoke to David Cox, a healthcare specialist at investment bank Panmure Gordon. When it comes to drug pricing entering the political arena, people naturally get jittery because it has really been the companies setting what they think prices should be in the US. And that is probably not sustainable. There does need to be some kind of regulation coming in. This has led to other things like um, the Department of Justice investigating in the generic price fixing. So lots of big name generics companies are named um, in that investigation. And obviously investors have been quite nervous about what's going to happen to them. Then there was the whole thing with Mylan increasing the price of EpiPen. And was that a fair thing to do? I think that when it comes to jitters and what's going on in the political arena, it's right to be nervous, but equally these things take a very long time to change. It's it's a bit of a super tanker of an industry. It's, it's not quick or agile in terms of how it moves. It's very highly regulated and rightly so. And so any big reform is clearly going to have to have the support of both patients and the industry because if you start coming down too hard on prices, then obviously the industry will react in a similar way and therefore cut its R&D budgets slow down the rates of innovation and nobody wants to see that. So there has to be a balance struck. I also asked David about the areas of drug pricing which might already be changing, both in development and sales. Everyone wants to see just fair prices. A hell of a lot of of investment goes in across the industry to get a drug to market. Many of the drugs that big pharma bring to market are not organically born from their R&D departments. They come from, there's a big long trail of M&A in the background of what's gone on. And if you look at the, the full amount of spend that's gone into something, you know, it's huge. And it doesn't just come down to, okay, I need these starting materials, I need to employ these people to make the drug and then these people to sell the drug. That would be an oversimplified um, drug model. Something something will change in terms of the way that things are priced. And there are examples of that, including GSK, their latest gene therapy that got approval. Strumbellis um, for the bubble boy disease. There's there's talk about that being effectively priced based on if it works. So if you give the drug to someone, it's a gene therapy, so it's a, a one shot dose. You, you get reimbursed for that. But then if a few years later they come back and need a second treatment for something else related, and um, because the drug's not worked, then some of that money would have to come back from the pharma company to the payer, um, effectively get refunded for a lack of efficacy. So all those kinds of models are coming into play now yeah. as well. Despite the volatility and grandstanding, it's also possible that the White House might be able to provide some solutions too. He's mentioned sensible things in my view, like selling health insurance across state lines, which previously hasn't been possible. Equally, the idea of parallel imports, being able to get cheaper drugs in um, from other countries. Um, You know, why should the US pay the US price when they can buy it somewhere else at a lower price. That's a sensible idea, but that all comes down to consumer protection as well. Um, And, you know, then you have the issue of um, counterfeit drugs being imported. There's all sorts of things that you've got to navigate. It's a very, very complicated area. So it's complicated, slow-moving industry. Some policy might end up benefiting the drug drug companies. And as David suggested, there's always going to be a balance between company investment and research and development spend. 
and the pricing trade-off. So why has this drug pricing issue reared its head with such intensity in the last year? Why has the pharmaceutical model come under such political scrutiny? Well, there are a lot of reasons for this, but none are better embodied by one person. Martin Shkreli was the CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals, which inflated the price of an HIV drug called Daraprim by 5,000%. He subsequently resigned as the CEO of his company, having brought in front of the criminal court for unrelated issues. But as we'll hear in the following interview with Fox, he actually makes some very salient points on the forces that dictate drugs pricing. He did go about this in a sort of hyper-capitalist manner, which invited some political fire, something which is never far away from the industry. Here he is speaking with Tucker Carlson, explaining why drugs get passed around pharma companies. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. These big drug companies, they don't uh, look at these drugs any more fondly than you look at your, the shoes in your closet that you haven't worn in five years and you're ready to throw away. They're old medicines that nobody cares about anymore, and they get passed around by, from company to company to company looking for a home for tender love and care. The reason they get passed around is because they're not Viagra, they're not Lipitor, they're not big sellers. These right. drugs sell almost nothing, and it costs millions of dollars to make a medicine. Um, even to make it for um, one drug I bought, the company stopped making it because it wasn't worth it to them. Right. And the 300 patients that needed this drug to survive, they didn't have anybody that actually wanted to make the pill for them, just to stamp out a pill. And so we bought that drug. We raised it 20-fold. There was no media celebrity. There was no, uh, nobody knew who I was that day, the day before, or the day after. It was only after, I've done this about six times, and each time the patients thank me for doing it because they say, I'd rather have someone make a few dollars and make my pills reliably, maybe continue research in the field, give grants out, do the things that you need to do to be a drug company because when I have this rare disease, only a few hundred people have my illness. Right. It's, I don't have the numbers of erectile dysfunction or cholesterol. As you've noted, Megan, this is a pretty standard view for the industry. Absolutely. Just a few weeks ago, for this podcast, I spoke to Summit Therapeutics CEO Glenn Edwards, who actually echoed Mr. Shkreli's views, but in more subtle terms. You've got to also consider the costs of programmes that have failed as well. You know, I think the, the, the off-quoted examples are once a, um, a drug gets into phase one, for every 10 that go into phase one, only one will get to market. So in looking at the costs of the successful drug, you also have to take into account the nine drugs that didn't make it and, and the costs uh, uh, that they had and the risks that are involved in that and the, the timescale. So you do need to make sure that you can get a, a return for these things. Now, exactly... Uh, uh, what a fair return is, we can debate, but there's no doubt society will reward companies that develop innovative new drugs and uh, will always strive to do so. So I have no doubt that uh, whatever the pricing environment changes, uh, that there are not just in the US, uh, but in, in Europe, uh, uh, the case for supporting companies that are developing new drugs will always be strong. David Cox at Pamia Gordon also thinks that high prices can be justified. To the extent that the price is fair. Equally, payers pay what, what they're going to pay. So, you know, I say that it's these pharma companies that set the prices and they'll go to the regulator and to the payer and say, we think it's worth this. But most of the time, you know, it's bidding war. So the payer will come back and say, no, it's not. It's worth this. And this is what we'd pay you. It is almost self-regulated in that way because it comes down to a business fundamental of willing buyer, willing seller. So if something is ridiculously overpriced, it will not sell um, at that price. And there will be uproar in the press. And price is a sensitive point only because it's the bit of the pharma industry that the patient and you know the person on the street actually feels directly. One thing clouding all of this is the complexity of the US healthcare industry, together with a highly press-sensitive new president. Here's David Cox again. 
there's probably a lack of understanding about how complicated the sector is by um, certain individuals in politics. And, uh, you know, it is a complicated um, area. The whole area of pricing and reimbursement is phenomenally complicated. You know, there's lots of moving parts. Equally, regulation about, you know, the FDA's um, primary concern is, um, is patient safety, effectively. And so, you know, you've got you've got the regulator, you've got the payer and you've got the company and then you've got the patient, They're the main stakeholders, really. And yes, they all want different things. And there has to be communication between them all. When new people with no political track record um, come onto the scene and make these big claims, people do get nervous because there's no track record. You don't know what we don't know what President Trump is going to try and do. Megan, you've also been speaking with someone who invests in biotech, who probably appreciates all of this more than most. Yes, I interviewed Daniel Collar. He is the head of investment management at Swiss-based BB Biotech. Um, And he's seen the drugs pricing debate come in and out of focus many times before. The short answer is yes, and we have dealt with this actually through each and every individual election cycle. And people seem to have forgotten that, I said, when Obama got elected, we had the same discussion around Obamacare um, and obviously said drug pricing and special discounts and rebates for, you know, different individual insurance population or insurance groups. And we think, as I said, that will continue, that actually the industry has to have an active dialogue as well to make sure there is understanding in terms of what's, you know, the value to the system for these individual products. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, we feel comfortable um, we think if pharmacoeconomics numbers start to become more important, I think, as I said, that biotech is well set up given that if you can prove the value that you generate for the individual patients, for society, as well as obviously for your shareholders and stakeholders, I think uh, we, are, we are well set from that respect. Obviously, we would be happy if, you know, the political um, pressure would abate to a certain degree. Um, but I think in the mid and long term, we feel very, very comfortable in terms of how biotech is set up as well as having products that come at a certain price point. But actually, you know, the companies and the industry has all the facts in their hands to prove that this is actually a fair and, 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 and valid price point. Daniel also explained how politics have impacted the companies and drugs he invests in, the performance of B Biotech and what happens to sentiment around the sector performance, for example, in 2016 has been a difficult one, as said, driven not by content or underlying innovation, but actually by this macro overlay in terms of politics. So I think investors are very aware of it. And we, in contrast, over the last couple of weeks and days, have fielded much more incoming interest, mostly driven because investors have often a complete or a substantial underweight in, in biotech. And they strongly reconsider, you know, is it now time to get back into the market and how to do so, given that obviously BioTech has there a very positive uh, long-term track record and I think a great reputation and the liquidity access. So whether or not that's BB Biotech talking up its own book, some investors sense an opportunity. Megan, as a writer who covers the sector, um, what are some of the reasons for investing in pharmaceuticals over the long term? Yeah, well, long term is a is a good point there. It's I think it's quite important to look at over the long term. And reasons for that market being good that there's an aging population everywhere around the globe they're demanding more drugs and there's also a population growing in wealth and there are lots of examples where the biotech industry is meeting these high unmet needs daniel collar told us about a few of the areas he's interested in 
Oncology remains one of our key areas uh, for investments. It has changed from the targeted therapies in the past to nowadays more and more focused towards so-called immuno-oncology, meaning how to actually improve the patient's own immune system to tackle and attack the underlying cancers. We have other disease areas like orphan disease, the rare medical disease that are few in numbers, luckily, but many actually individual diseases that exist. We think that's going to remain a very attractive spot, but that we look more in terms of opportunistic case-by-case into it. And then last but not least, over the last couple of years, we have shifted gears and have started to reconsider at the central nervous system. There's also the continual possibility for innovation and new products which haven't been developed yet. Here's David Cox on that subject. Key things to look for would be innovation. So bringing something new to the market, potentially creating a new market. So, you know, things like gene therapy we couldn't have ever envisaged many years ago. And now we've potentially got the ability to actually correct faulty genes that cause hereditary diseases, for example. So there's that. But then, um, you know, thinking more commercially, it's it's all about really being able to reduce the amount of time that people stay in hospital and get them back to full fitness. And developers of those drugs will be rewarded and should be rewarded because, you know, otherwise there's no industry if, if it runs out of money and no one wants to see that. And um, generic drugs as well are an increasing area of focus, even if from an investment point of view, the margins are a bit thinner. You know, generics are a big part of, of healthcare, um, bigger and bigger. Um, you know, back in the 80s, I think it was like 15% of prescriptions were generic. It's now over 90. So people are using generic medicines more and rightly so because there's nothing wrong with them. They just might not be as good as what has just been you know, approved yesterday or whatever. But it's, they're still effective medicines. And depending on the disease, obviously, um, you can use generics across the board. And you know, respiratory is a great example of, of generic use. Mylan um, failed to get their generic adver approved because the device, um, the discus device, wasn't interchangeable with the GSK one. Um, so it's still a complicated area. But everyone wants a slice of the generics pie. Equally, um, Humira, which has been a very successful drug for AbbVie, lots of biosimilars are, are coming now. Um, everyone wants a slice of that pie. Pfizer have, have entered the, the biosimilar arena um, to get a biosimilar of Humira because they see the value there. So, And they see that everyone's switching over to, um, prescribers are switching over to generic medicines as well. As with all things, investing is all about striking the balance between the speculative and more dependable sectors of any industry. We think you have to have a balanced portfolio, meaning you have to have certain larger cap names. We think in the mid and longer term, obviously small mid caps will drive much more performance, but it comes with substantial increase in volatility. As a professional investor, you have to balance risk and return. And from that perspective, in biotech, as still a volatile sector, we recommend uh, portfolios in that respect. We obviously think that, you know, BB Biotech stands very well and stands for itself with its track record. But I said that has to be obviously the individual decision. So that was Daniel Collar there talking about how he structured his portfolio of biotech companies. This is an industry which is going to be here for a long time. Fortunately, we will all need drugs at some point in our life. Exactly. As in the case of David, who we heard from at the beginning, whose life depends on the continued development of important cancer drugs. The pharmaceutical industry is always going to have political noise around it, but that, we don't think, detracts from an exciting industry for investment. I've been Megan Boxall. And I've been Alex Newman, and you've been listening to an IC special podcast. For more IC podcasts, go to ACAST, iTunes, or our website, investorschronicle.co.uk.